Sometimes, to find meaning in life, you just need to spin a globe and pray your finger lands somewhere exciting. Well, sometimes you, um, you end up in the middle of nowhere. And maybe it's the middle of nowhere you have to go to find yourself. In this episode, we are meeting Alexandra, a Norwegian model whose spontaneous journey made her trade the glitz and glamour of the New York runway for something more wholesome and wild in the Namibian desert. This is Traveler Stories, a podcast brought to you by SAS. In this season, you will meet people who traveled abroad and suddenly found themselves in a situation that changed the course of their lives. If I do end up suddenly old in a rocking chair, I will at least remember this thing. The world is the best classroom you can ever visit in your entire life. None of this would have happened if it hadn't been for that Thai boxing gym. I got this physical reaction. I can understand people now saying that they got some kind of religious call. I'm actually getting goosebumps as I'm telling this again. There aren't many parents who would allow their daughter to leave school and pursue a modeling career in Paris. But there are some. They were always like rooting for us to be very independent and do what we love and and discover the world. So they took us traveling everywhere. Yeah, it was a very active and nourishing upbringing for me. This is Alexandra, a 29-year-old from Norway. When she was 14, she fell into modeling completely by chance. So actually, it was one of my friends who, without telling me, had submitted a photo to an agency. And they phoned me and I thought it was a prank call and I I hung up. After realizing it wasn't a prank call, Alexandra found herself signing with a modeling agency in Norway. Her time modeling with them got her noticed further afield. Then uh, Eileen Ford uh, and Ford Modeling Agency in New York invited me over to New York when I was 14. And uh, that was like my, you know, discovery of the world. Um, And I got to do all the crazies living in a model's apartment, uh, which is not as glamorous as you would think. (laughs) It's actually really expensive to live there and you sleep on mattresses. Um, But yeah, that's uh, how I started. And then I moved to Paris when I was 15. So that was my ticket out of Norway. And for Alexandra, getting out of Norway felt like a huge relief. For me, Norway felt really small. It felt a bit claustrophobic. Um, It felt a bit boxy. And I also think I was born in the wrong place because I just definitely can't do six months of darkness and, and winter. I'm like a solar panel. I need to be where there's light. So Alexandra went off to Paris. And as you can imagine, her life wasn't like the average 15 year old. I became a grown up very quickly. At first, it was um, bedazzling. It was a dream to be there. It was a place that I, I had gone with my parents on holiday, and now I could suddenly spend all this time there. I lived there. It was my address. Um, and uh, obviously, Paris was booming with nice restaurants and uh, going to the parks and, and being outside. So that was uh, quite amazing. And uh, then after a while, you realize that it's actually really, really lonely. I had uh, about seven days a week uh, working every day. And I had about 170 around there traveling days a year. 
So it was a, it was a busy career. Working seven days a week really paid off. Not only was she appearing frequently in Vogue, Marie Claire, and Elle magazines, she was also working on other impressive campaigns. So the first campaigns that I did uh, was Diesel Jeans. I did uh, Jimmy Shoe. Um, I did Vela. I did Pandora. And of course, like tons of magazines like Vogue's and Elle's and Marie Claire's and anything you can imagine. I think I, um, I definitely did it. Modeling for the biggest designers in the world usually means you get involved in other businesses too, such as acting. When Alexandra was 17, she relocated to New York City. And shortly after, opportunities started to arise. I started uh, acting in New York quite quickly after I arrived there. And I started studying with um, an acting coach called Sheila Gray. Who's, she's been the coach of Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Wayana Ryder. Like, she's, she's quite incredible, extraordinary woman. First, I stayed in uh, East Village which I didn't like. So when I moved to West Village, I felt a lot more at ease and at peace because it was a little bit villagey and that was beautiful. So what I always did in New York was uh, looking for those little like green lungs where I could just breathe and, and uh, hear my own thoughts. From the outside, Alexandra was living the New York fairy tale that would make anyone envious. But the amount of work and the hectic schedule was starting to take a toll on her. You're really thrown into the real world, and the real world being being sent on, you know, about 14 castings a day in different locations all over in Manhattan and Brooklyn, living in, uh, you know, places where you don't really feel at home, uh, on a sleeper couch in somebody's house, and not really knowing anyone, and spending a lot of time at... Starbucks's just to, you know, avoid going home or to stay warm. <laughs> and then with the with all the loneliness and just looking in the mirror and feeling like you're not really there. And so there's all these things that that starts to make you become aware of the fact that you're not entirely happy. And also, when I did my first acting class, uh, I lay down to do relaxation and I got like complete anxiety because my body didn't know what it was like to breathe or relax. One night, she was walking home from set on a movie they were shooting in Brooklyn. It was quite late at night and uh, walking, walking in like quite empty streets and there was... Um, Two guys that uh, started this normal New York thing, which is like like talking to you like your cat or something. I did have a little bit of a, an odd gut feeling that something was not entirely right. And um, I walked past them, and suddenly they grabbed a hold of me, and they wanted um, they wanted my my money. Alexandra starts searching for her money, and while she looks in her purse, she feels something cold. Then suddenly I just felt something cold on my forehead. And uh, there was a guy in front of me who was pointing a gun at me. And I think that moment of having like a gun pointing at your, your head, you really realize everything that you, you should have listened to in, in your, how you live your life. Or, so for me, it felt like a, 
a real wake-up call. Uh, he had control and I had lost all control. Once the desperate men have gotten their money and are about to run away, the one who takes away the gun says something that will stay with her forever. He said, you don't want to die. And then he said, like, he literally, like, pushed the, the gun harder towards my forehead and said, so start living, and then, like, ran. In a situation like this, you might think the normal reaction would be to call the police, call your parents, or call a friend. But Alexandra does neither of these things. She just goes home. And when I arrived at my apartment, I, I opened the door, and the first thing that looked back at me was this globe. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm on, on like a, uh, on a sign uh, <laughs> marathon today where I'm just going to pick up on the one sign after the other. And so I decided to spin that globe and wherever my finger would land, I would go. And if my finger landed in the middle of the ocean somewhere, that would mean that I would have to travel the world. And so I spun the globe. Desperate to find a new narrative, she spins the globe. Wherever her finger lands, she has to go. My finger landed on Namibia. Her finger lands on Namibia. And the first thing she thinks is, where is that? Well, obviously I could see that it was on the African continent, but I didn't have any specific references to Namibia. I mean... I knew a little bit more than Donald Trump, who calls it Nambia. But other than that, it was just a country with a lot of desert. The Republic of Namibia is a country in the southwestern part of Africa by the Atlantic coast. It has one of the world's lowest populations and is home to large groups of indigenous people. It also has a lot of wildlife. This was very appealing to Alexandra. I wanted to contribute and give back and do something that mattered. So then I looked for volunteer work and and what opportunities was in Namibia. The first place that came up was, uh, it's called Noah's Ark. So yeah, and I phoned my best buddy in Norway and I told him that he had to come with me. Two weeks later, we were on a plane to go to Namibia. When the plane finally flies over the Namibian landscape, Alexandra has her face pressed against the window. At this stage, I'd flown what felt like all over the world. But when I flew over Namibia, and what was different was that it was like a land of nothing. And it intrigued me because it, first of all, felt so so spacious. And after living in New York City, where you're literally like running around in a labyrinth, um, only seeing the sun being reflected through buildings, and you don't see the sun itself, and then to suddenly be in this like wide open country and landscape and from above it's it's um it's just orange and all the colors of warmth and you hardly see any roads or houses and yeah I just I just felt at home and I think it's also because Norway even though we have more trees and stuff um it's a bit like that you know it's not heavily populated and it feels spacious uh, but this was all my kind of colors of warmth and all the things that was uh, the opposite of all the metal and concrete. I just felt at home. 
she steps off the plane. I could already just smell this country of Namibia. You know, every country has its own smell. And uh, Namibia was just like, it's like this bushy lavender smell when you walk out. And it was just reinforcing that, that sense of belonging. Alexandra arrives at the wildlife sanctuary, Noah's Ark, where she's going to be a volunteer for the next two weeks. So I lived on a farm that was um, 300 kilometers away from the capital city in the Kalahari Desert area. Um, and it was a farm that had a little volunteer village where the volunteers uh, stayed, a little staff village. Once you're there, the world outside stops existing because you have like real problems. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's like the lines are out. We have to go and deal with that, you know. Oh my God, there's a baby baboon. Oh, there's a farmer that phoned about a cheetah. He's going to kill it if we don't pick it up. On Alexandra's first day, she was your typical Western volunteer girl with a vision to save animals. You know, I came like most people to Africa with hand sanitizer and, uh, you know, um, my laptop computer and camera and sunscreen with a big mission to like help animals and people and all of that stuff. She was about to meet the wildest animals in the world. But her orientation meeting was a lot shorter than you would expect. Literally, like, two days later, you're supposed to, like, walk in to a cheetah area and you realize that these cats are pretty big. <laughs> and uh, in that moment, you realize that you can't be anybody but yourself. Alexandra also experiences how the animals can really build your character. If you walk into an animal enclosure and you're not confident or you, you are scared, but you're pretending not to be, they will come and visit you first. And especially uh, baboons, they would start actively seeking my attention. And, and the way they do that is by lifting your arm up uh, to where their mouth is and then and place their teeth on, on your skin to check if you're going to be scared. And if you're scared, they'll bite you. And uh, if, if you pretend like nothing, they'll leave you alone. So they would test me quite a lot. It wasn't just the baboons who were testing Alexandra. Uh, there was an old guy who ran the project, and uh, he's like this 75-year-old um, guy whose skin looks like a leather couch because it's been burned hard by the sun. He really was out to get me and like break me down because obviously he saw that I was coming from a world that had uh, removed me from myself. So he would like, you know, drive into thorn bushes when I was hanging on the side of the car, checking if I would let go, or if I was strong enough to like take it, you know, and he was really like testing me all the time, throwing like throwing me in with the big baboons. And he's like, woman, become friends with them, you know, and so he was really, um, I, I owe so much to that guy because he, um, he just slapped me back into reality, you know, of who I am and what really lives in me. As the two weeks she had planned in Namibia were getting close to an end, Alexandra realizes that she is not ready to go home. I think for the first time in like five years, I felt really present and real in myself. She had gone from being a wannabe Pocahontas to really caring for the animals. 
I was supposed to stay at the wildlife sanctuary for two weeks. And uh, then when we got close to the end of the two weeks, uh, my best buddy looked at me and he's like, you're not coming home with me, are you? And no, she wasn't. So I extended my stay for a month and a half. And then I was offered a job to come back as a coordinator. I was given responsibility of lions and I became the animal caretaker. And there was all these things that started happening there. So eventually I had to make a decision on whether I was going to come back or not. So then you're like, hmm, working with baby lions or going back to New York City. I chose Namibia. So went to New York, got rid of relationship, apartment, and all the, <laughs> all the things, and uh, went back with my suitcase full of khaki. So she changed her heels for khaki and her NYC zip code to the African bush. Alexandra had many encounters with the animals, but it was the indigenous people in Namibia who really struck a chord. So I came over this um, area called Bushmanland, um, and I traveled up there uh, with the intention that, yeah, now we're going to release like some cheetahs and we're just going to negotiate with whoever is living up there and it's going to be fine. And then I met the Junkwasi people. The Junkwasi people are the oldest tribe in the world or oldest culture. They have the most genetic matches to everyone on the planet. So when you look into the eyes of a Bushman woman or man, you see the whole world. You see you. The Bushmen have been around for hundreds of thousands of years. They are hunters and gatherers and have lived as gardeners of nature their entire lifetime. And what they they taught me um, was that we're not just residing in nature. We are of nature. And it was that moment when I realized that, hey, all this poverty that I was reacting to when I first drove in there and seeing how marginalized and, and, and poor they were, and that was actually just in me. It was the day she first spoke to the Shinkwasi Bushmen that she realized everything had changed. It's not about us being this like top predator standing outside of the ecosystem looking in. We have to learn about what's on the inside and we need to talk to the people who, who actually knows the heart of the earth because they've spent their entire life nurturing it. As she sat in the sand and spoke to the Bushmen, she became their friend and soaked up their wisdom. It was a 94-year-old woman who was really good at dropping mental bombs. There was this old lady called Koshe that now is my Bushman mother. She's 94. And she asked me why I was alone um, when I first came to their village. And... Uh, she said, you know, I'll be your mother. And she gave me a name, uh, which is Nlisa, and it's the daughter's name. She probably said the most life-changing thing uh, to me, which she pointed at a tree and she said, uh, can you see that tree? And I said, yeah, of course. Well, if you can see it, then it is you. Now, how are you going to treat it? The Bushmen introduced her properly to the earth and started to put important ideas into her head. One day, when she was helping look after the elephants, she started thinking. That's what the Junkwasi people were trying to tell me.
she gets an idea to start a conservation trust that would blend Mother Nature with Mother Modern. So I was like, how can we can create um, synergies between like community, culture, tradition, nature, and also uh, educate, you know, the poverty of hearts that is in the Western world and fill that space or feed that space more, um, more correctly. And then how do we like empower a marginalized community that obviously there's no way that they can focus on caring about conservation when the basic needs are not there because it's been taken away from them. In 2011, Alexandra made this idea a reality. Her conservation trust, Nanufasa, extracts ancient knowledge and turns it into a modern opportunity. Her vision is to achieve a presence of sustainable, vibrant, and healthy communities in areas of operation, to empower marginalized groups, and to make sure that the wisdom of the indigenous people is not lost. Just to give you a concrete example, uh, we have something called wildlife shepherds. So with the tracking knowledge of the of the Jungfrosi, and with that, married with modern tech and research and monitoring, we are then able to create like a big brother surveillance monitoring system that protects wildlife. Lions are endangered, but people never talk about like people and culture being endangered. But here we literally have like a collaboration where they're both trying to keep each other alive in a way because, you know, he can make a living by protecting a lion, but he's also making sure that the lion can be living. Alexandra believes it's important to bridge worlds, and that is why she can still be found modeling today to promote different important issues such as Nanufasa. And this she keeps on doing, still traveling a lot, being what she calls a modern nomad or a citizen of the world. But her main home, where she spends most of her time, remains in Namibia. When you're, when you're a modern uh, nomad, you're always searching for a home, right? And always searching for the next place. But what made me feel at home in myself was when I literally realized that sometimes you have to, well, sometimes you, um, you end up in the middle of nowhere. And maybe it's the middle of nowhere you have to go to find yourself. Alexandra is convinced that her life wouldn't have been the same if her finger hadn't landed on Namibia that day. And she is forever grateful for all the knowledge that she has been given and still is getting from the African Bushmen. This trip made me whole by the fact that it uh, shifted my focus from being like, outside voices are really important to like, hang on a minute. I have a really uh, clear and strong voice and I'm gonna listen to that more than I listen to all the things on the outside. So it, it, it made me uh, a lot closer to myself and through that, I think I've also sort of discovered this opportunity of um, opening other people's hearts and bringing a little bit of balance into all the drama out there. And why is it important to travel? She has this reflection. She finds her own essence and can feel at home anywhere. The world is the best classroom you can ever visit in your entire life. There is no school or anything that can offer you the same thing that the world can offer you. And uh, culture and nature are the colors of our world, and without them, it will just be gray. 
and we will all be the same. And that's not what's going to inspire arts or writings or music or anything like that. So traveling is, um, it's a way to get to know yourself. It's a way to get to know the world and who you want to be in the world and where you want to be in the world. Because sometimes you might just be born in the wrong place.